submitted. We'll hear argument next to number 91-1526, Ferris J. Alexander v. United States. Spectators are admonished to be quiet until you get out of the courtroom. The court remains in session. Mr. Weston, you may proceed. Thank you, Your Honor. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, Congress designed RICO to eliminate any business which has committed two or more predicate RICO offenses. Such a business then becomes illegal and therefore forfeitable. Under the First Amendment, the presumption is that no matter how many speech violations a business may commit, it retains its protected status because all unlitigated materials are presumed to be constitutionally protected. This case then presents the collision between RICO and the First Amendment, made inevitable by the 1984 Congressional Amendment adding obscenity to the predicate list of RICO offenses. Which of our cases do you rely on, Mr. Weston, for the proposition that when obscenity is charged, it is presumed that it is not obscene? I take it that's what you're saying. The mere fact of an accusation, Mr. Chief, if I understand the Court's question, the mere fact of an accusation does not serve to deprive the material that is being challenged of its protected status until such time as a court ultimately and finally determines that it is not obscene. That is certainly the case. Is that just a burden of proof proposition? You're saying that anyone is, if it's a criminal prosecution, you're presumed innocent until you're found guilty. Not at all, Your Honor. With respect to the materials alleged to be obscene, a host of cases, including all of the so-called search and seizure cases, Marcus and quantity of books, Fort Wayne books, and a host of others have all stood for the proposition that even where material is being accused by government of being obscene until such time as it is finally determined to be obscene, it may not be removed from the public totally because to do so would constitute a total prior restraint. And in fact, in Heller, this Court went so far in 1973 as to note that where a single motion picture film was available to an exhibitor seized by government as part of an obscenity prosecution, it was the duty of government to make at least a copy of that film available or to permit the defendant to have a copy of the film so that the film might continue to be exhibited until such time as it was ultimately determined to be obscene. Yeah, that established that you can't seize it under those conditions. I don't think it established the proposition that you're talking about. Well, with all respect, I see no difference with respect to that, Your Honor, that if the material is presumed to be protected until it is ultimately deprived judicially of its protected status, under that circumstance, it retains the presumption of protectedness and simply may not be removed. Our point, however, is with respect to this case that other than the seven items determined to be obscene 
by the jury in this case all of the other material that was seized and destroyed by the government pursuant to the forfeiture order was neither alleged nor proven to be obscene. And the government is quite candid in that the nature of the material is totally irrelevant. It might have been sexually oriented, it might have been erotic, but it just might as well have been a book on how to improve one's bridge game or build a garden or a videotape dealing with Bambi or Aladdin. The point is... Do I understand that all this material was burned? Yes, Your Honor. It is our understanding that all of the hundreds of thousands of books, magazines, videotapes, and films seized from the, representing the entirety of petitioner's inventory without any consideration or allegation or determination of the protected or unprotected status of this material was seized by the government, carted away, and burned in an incinerator by the federal marshal. These were all so-called sexually oriented materials or not? I mean, not, was, the, the, record, the last of the Mohicans, what, what are we talking about? The record here? does not reflect that, Your Honor. There were certainly uh, some items. What, what, what was the business in question? The businesses represented a number of different businesses. They were video stores, adult bookstores, what, adult, adult bookstores. What kind of video were they? Adult video stores? So much was probably adult video. Uh, Justice Scalia, the entirety of it was not. But from the First Amendment perspective, none of this material, none of the, the status, none of the uh, nature or determination or character of the seized material was alleged, mm -hmm. and clearly under this court's consistent decisions, the First Amendment requires judicial blindness to the res to the nature of the material that was seized without any judicial focus well, as, whatsoever. As far as the seizure is concerned, but there there was and an the objection here. The destruction. Well, not just the government's property, I suppose. If if the government appropriately took uh, took control of it and possession of it and ownership of it. I suppose the government can do with it what it wants, and, and, and the objection to whether the government ought to have burned it or not probably should depend on, on what its character is. Maybe the government didn't want to be in the pornography business. Well, that may be, uh, and I uh, understand that perspective, although with... ...is to the seizure of it and, and the, the placing the ownership in the government, not to what the government does with what it owns. Ab so. Absolutely, Your Honor, except to the extent that the government's destruction of the material certainly uh, at a time of enormous national debt, uh, when all proceeds from sale of seized material would certainly go to reduce that debt, bespeaks a governmental purpose to remove protected or presumptively protected materials from uh, public circulation uh, in a way that certainly ought to arise the, since the interest in, anti, in, in, in constitutional protection of both this court uh, as well as all of us. Mr. Weston, would you be making any objection if what had been done was simply to require the uh, sale or disposition of all the presumptively protected uh, materials and to turn the proceeds over to the government? That's a very tricky and interesting question, Justice O'Connor, and the answer to that is yes, and frankly, the government... Yes, you would yes, make, we would the, make same the same First Amendment claim? Yes, Your Honor, and, and the reason for it is well demonstrated by what happened in this case, because the moment the government acquires title to the materials, it then has the absolute determination as to whether it's going to leave the materials in uh, public circulation, or whether it isn't. Well, suppose it doesn't take title to the materials. It instructs the uh, uh, your client to dispose of it and turn the money over to the government. 
In that case, an aspect of the prior restraint doctrine would be satisfied or would be finessed in a sense in that the public would not necessarily be deprived of the materials, but it certainly doesn't, uh, doesn't deal with the right of the disseminator to be able, in an untrammeled way, to continue to disseminate presumptively protected materials. Oh, for goodness sake, suppose the government decided because of the RICO violations to, to seek a prison sentence of this person. But in that... I guess he could be imprisoned for a, a criminal violation of RICO. No, no question, Your Honor. But and that might discourage his business activities for a while. Discourage, but not necessarily or inevitably or immediately in every case eliminate them. And that really becomes the critical... Oh, you assume that the business could continue to be operated while the person's in prison? Yes, absolutely, and particularly in in the context of today's modern business world. Corporations conduct most businesses. If the president of a corporation is placed in jail, the corporation continues to function, and the business continues to disseminate presumptively protected materials. Sadly, we have seen all too often in recent years the presidents of major corporations incarcerated, and business goes on uh, in the same way, although hopefully in a more law-abiding fashion. In fact, that happened here, didn't it? I mean, you, uh, your, your client was, was in prison. Uh, oh, no, absolutely was not. Was not in prison? No, no, he was in prison. But the business did not the continue to operate while totally that, And In fact, yeah. that's exactly the point. What the government did here was to completely eliminate the business and, cl- and completely impose the total prior restraint because the forfeiture order... I'm talking about this conviction. I'm talking about prior convictions. Uh, I, I, my understanding was that there had been prior convictions on the, obscenity charges. The, indi- the predicate RICO Act yeah. did not include or allege any prior conviction. The record does not reflect that there was a prior conviction. As an I lo- officer of the court, I, re- I advise, Your Honor that in 1969 or 1970, there was an obscenity conviction in the Ferris Alexander, followed some years later by an acquittal, followed by almost 20 years of non-prosecution at either the state or the federal level. The point being that under this statute, which is what is obviously before the court, what was done here was on the basis solely of jury determination that seven items were unprotected, Literally hundreds of thousands of books, films, magazines. As then, Mr. Weston, yes, Mr. Is, is that the actual correct comparison? You say seven items were uh, unprotected, and then hundreds of thousands were not determined. But wasn't there more than one copy of each of those seven items? The indictment alleges, Your Honor, that with respect to some of the materials, there were multiple copies received in interstate commerce by my client in Minnesota. The substantive provisions, the 1466 counts, which reference possession with intent to sale or sale, do not indicate whether there were more than one copy. They are silent with Did the record, the, the record of the trial, I mean, you, because you're, you're, when you say hundreds of thousands, you're talking about... Different the, titles, Your Honor. Different hundreds titles. of thousands of hundreds different Hundreds of thousands titles. of different titles is what we believe to be the case with respect to uh, to videotapes, films, magazines, individual media items. And I'm trying to, because I think I understand the court's question. I am not saying a million copies of three titles. We are saying scores of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands, perhaps I engaged in some hyperbole for which I apologize, but scores of thousands. 
many thousands of different titles were seized and destroyed, all of which had neither been in alleged to be obscene or determined to be obscene. Coupled with... Is, is, is there so, some transcript or record that, that, uh, that you can refer to that establishes this? The... the uh, I, yes, there, are, there is a transcript uh, offhand, uh, I, I confess, Mr... But Mr. someone Mr. got up and testified that this, this, there were scores of thousands or something like that? Let me suggest this, and perhaps this will assist the court. Well, did... I'm asking... Yes, did there, were, there, there, there was... The, the trial court in its sentencing order noted it, and more importantly, uh, and I'm sure the government would not contest this, but at the forfeiture hearing, the government put into evidence in an attempt, uh, and we respectfully submit a constitutionally irrelevant attempt, but to somehow characterize what the nature of the business was, at least 400 different separate videotapes none of which had been alleged to be obscene, and uh, perhaps 20 or 30 magazines and books and so forth. So whether it be 100,000 different titles or 50,000 or 10,000 different titles, the number of different unlitigated titles was extraordinary. But let us not stop there simply with the media items, because the media items, large as they were, whatever the number was, are an extraordinary minimal portion of the terrible prior restraint that was imposed here, because 10 media businesses the equipment necessary to support the dissemination, plus the businesses themselves, were taken over by the government and closed in a geometric fashion, totally therefore eliminating not only the dissemination of all materials that presently existed in the universe, but all those which might have been created in the future, which could have been disseminated. Mr. Weston, as I understand it, you, you, you would have had, you, you say you would not have any objection to that under the First Amendment if the predicate offenses had not been uh, speech offenses. That is correct, Your Honor. This court in Arcara right. made very, very clear that where the predicate conduct has no communicative quality, mm -hmm. whether it be conduct with some, as, as Justice O'Connor... You can take away all the media businesses. In Arcara, that was the holding right. of this court. Okay, and, and similarly, as I understand it, you would have no objection if it was a speech offense for the predicate RICO offense, and the punishment, no matter how severe, life imprisonment, was not the taking away of media businesses or of, of media uh, documents, books, and so forth, right? No, Your Honor. The, there would no. be no per se description of that penalty as being a per se prior restraint, as in the potential of a high fine, the, a, a, the potential of a jail sentence may or may not in any case constitute a First Amendment well, problem. See, I, I, I don't see how what you're doing is combining two, two uh, uh, positions, neither one of which alone would, be in a, would violate the First Amendment on your, on your admission. And you say that somehow when you combine the two, although they don't reinforce each other as far as I can see, it is a First Amendment uh, objection. There, 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 are two, there, there, there are two problems about One is the chill of, of the speech, right? And, and the, the chill could be affected just, just as much by imprisonment as by taking away the person's business. Right? But we're not in this argument, Your Honor, although this court has frequently noted that one of the vices of a prior restraint is the chill. I mean, in the Pittsburgh Glass Company case cited by the government, uh, that's exactly what the, prime, the, uh, the concept is. But the point that we're making primarily here is that it is the prior res restraint 
which invalidates in every case the RICO sanction as applied, the RICO forfeiture sanction as applied to speech predicates, because in every case, speech will inevitably and immediately be suppressed. The taking of the books, the closing of the store, and so forth. Whereas speech will inevitably be, be suppressed whenever you go after anybody in the media business under RICO, whether it's for a speech offense or for any other ah, offense. But the, ah, right? I see the, co the court's yes. point. But the, 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 the classical difference is, as pointed out by Neer and as in, in, a in a host of subsequent cases, there are special rules, special concerns that we have for the First Amendment. And the nature of the injunction that was issued in Neer would have caused no problem if, as in Arcara, the predicate or triggering conduct it had nothing to do with speech. Why was it that this court, forgive the rhetorical question, but this court struggled and wrestled with the problem in Arcara because, in fact, a bookstore was enjoined. The ultimate conclusion was that where the triggering conduct either had no speech at all or uh, had no communicative content or no expressive conduct which was involved in the sanction, that it simply was not a prior restraint. But the obvious implication, if not explication, in both Chief Justice Berger's opinion and in Justice O'Connor's concurring opinion, is that where the triggering activity was either speech or had communicative conduct, or as, as Justice O'Connor noted, where a non-speech triggering statute had been used as a pretext to impose censorship in the interest of decency, then there would have to be a First Amendment analysis. And in this case, the only underlying conduct, the only triggering or predicate conduct, is unquestionably speech. We are out of our care, we are back in near, we are back in Kingsley, we are back in Marcus and Quantity, and the First Amendment analysis unquestionably applies. And what is also clear in this case is that there was no pretext for the use of RICO to close down this business. That was what the statute was designed to do, to eliminate a, a speech business because an isolated, in this case, an isolated number of its titles had been determined to be obscene. And I asked the court to consider. What, what about fraud convictions? Are they speech convictions? Inherently. Inherently. So you no, could, no, I'm, forgive me. I, I was trying to, to, to analyze it. One must look at the nature of the conduct. Fraud will not necessarily involve a speech situation. You have to make a representation, don't you? Well, we'll have to see what the underlying conduct is and then to try to, to examine it. The question well, with the... It's, it's always performed by speech, by communication. Now, that speech is unprotected to the extent that it commits a fraud. And, and the speech in this case is unprotected to the extent that it becomes obscenity. That, that, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to say that, that no media business can be, uh, can be where uh, the underlying taken for fraud. And we are not asserting that. And for example, there may well be a situation in a, in a, in a copyright infringement situation where a print shop prints copyright violational materials where the underlying concern is not the expression as in the fraud case but what the concern is, is the content of the material. This statute is content-based. It is designed to prohibit and punish 
content, of communicative content of the expression in a way that either the fraud or some other print type thefts or property uh, uh, interferences with are not. In this situation, this is speech, and this is exactly what the situation was in Near, where the contents of the Near publication were, although denominated a public nuisance, analyzed and determined that it was the expressive content of the speech, which is what gave it, although in and of itself, each item of speech, each of the nine issues of the Saturday press over the three-month period, were themselves deemed to be outside constitutional protection. Nonetheless, that did not permit government under any circumstances to be prospectively able to interfere with any other kind of speech. But you, you don't claim that this case is governed by Near, do you? Yes, Justice Souter. We well, in, in, the, in the Near case, any further publication by the, by the publisher of the Saturday Press was enjoined. Uh, and in fact, no one else was publishing the Saturday Press. Whereas in this case, uh, we have no reason to believe that there aren't, that the publishers of the material seized aren't going to go right on publishing it, and other distributors are going to go right on distributing it. And we have no reason to believe that when this individual uh, gets out of prison, he can't go right on doing those things too. So I don't see how Near uh, covers this situation. But there is no suggestion in Near that Mr. Near's brother or his neighbor or someone who shared his virulent uh, anti-Semitic passion couldn't pick up the publication and continue to publish it in exactly the same way. Well, Near didn't decide that one way or the other, did it? Near was silent with respect that's, to it, that's but, right. the, but, 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 but with all... But your, your analogy, maybe I misunderstood your argument. I thought you were analogizing your client to the publisher in Near, and all I'm saying is that he does not bear a very close analogy, because A, he is not enjoined from further distribution, and B, no one else is enjoined from distribution. The aspect of the injunction, merely because an injunction was issued in the case, is certainly, with respect, not dispositive of the nature of what the fundamental near holding is by analyzing the operation and effect of the sanction in the case as we are directed by near to do. Near was prevented from dealing with future unlitigated publication. There was a speech sanction that was imposed on near from going forward and disseminating presumptively protected material in the future. And the court said, no, you that is an impermissible uh, restraint. In, in Keefe, in Citizens for Better Austin versus Keefe, the injunction, although it was an injunction, was even broader. The, 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 the enjoined party could disseminate nothing prospectively. The point is, in this case, unlitigated, undetermined speech, uh, pr presumptively protected speech, was seized and destroyed. An analogy to the Nears incapacity to be able to go forward and continue to publish what it was that he determined that he wanted to publish, so too Ferris Alexander was deprived the opportunity at the ten locations to be able to disseminate the material which he, in his editorial judgment, chose to disseminate. Well, what, if the, what if the offense were the failure to pay taxes, as was also alleged here, I guess? Can the government seize all the inventory and dispose of it for the failure to pay the taxes without invoking the concerns of a prior restraint? In this case, Your Honor, of course, and I say this for the record, that none of the uh, RICO predicate conduct or any of the forfeiture was attributable to the tax case. 
But in response to the court's specific question, mm -hmm. a civil judgment or a tax judgment mm -hmm. may certainly be satisfied from whatever assets there are to be satisfied. But then once again, what triggers the sanction is not speech. And the Constitution, just as in Arcara, does not say that no speech business may be subject to regulation in the same way that uh, zoning or fire or safety and so forth would be. And just as in any situation where a civil judgment might be satisfied from a completely unrelated situation. The owner of a bookstore hit a, in an automobile, uh, killed somebody, and certainly a civil judgment could be used to satisfy that. But the point is, is that from the jurisprudence of this court dealing with First Amendment matters, unlitigated, presumptively protected speech may not be interdicted, destroyed, taken out of circulation simply because other media materials have been determined to be obscene. Lesson, and if, can I ask you a question about your theory? I, I understand what you're saying about speech both causing it and being what's uh, forfeited. What if what was forfeited was, say, say American Airlines showed a couple of obscene movies on a, on a flight. Uh, would you say that the, that would justify forfeiture of the whole airline? Uh, no, Justice Stevens. But under the statute, would I? I'm, I'm curious about how the statute operates. It's Here, his entire business was forfeited because a half a dozen or so obscene items were seized. Would, would the statute operate in the same way in my hypothetical? Absolutely. For two or more. But you're saying that would not violate any, that would be perfectly constitutional to take over the airline. No, we're not. Because they're not engaged in the speech business. No, Your Honor, we're not saying that, and for two reasons. One, because it may well be and I would assume in the circumstance that you suggested, that taking over the entirety of the airline would certainly affect a prior restraint on the airline's ability to be able to exhibit other unlitigated motion picture films. But in this context... It's only for that reason, not because of the magnitude of the seizure. You don't rely at all on the magnitude of what not is seized from, in relation to the not from the small amount of what was... Uh, Excuse violation. Me. Not from the First Amendment perspective. Of course, the Eighth Amendment might well uh, speak to that as we have raised uh, in our in well, our Mr. Mr. Weston, uh, I take it you uh, you don't uh, claim that uh, the that the RICO statute did not authorize these seizures. Not only did it not not only do we not claim that, Justice White, we affirmatively represent and argue that this judgment fairly and accurately did exactly what the RICO statute directed trial judges to do under this circumstance. And so, so you think the provisions of the... Uh, you don't think you can find any, any basis for objecting to this forfeiture in the provisions of the... in, in the provisions of the statute authorizing the forfeiture? That you, don't, you don't think that this forfeiture that the government insisted on was outside the provisions of the statute? Given... I mean, uh, just, just, just uh, as a statutory construction problem. Given the broad potential for forfeiture under 19, six, Section 1963, what the court did was commanded and directed by the statute. Trial counsel ably argued that the forfeiture should be limited to the obscene materials and the proceeds specifically attributable and under the grandiloquent phrase from Congress and from judicial decisions that the purpose of RICO is to extirpate the entire business root and branch. 
But if the entire business, if any contribution to the business, no matter how trivial, is the proceeds of a predicate offense? Under settled, uh, under existing law, that appears to be unquestioned, as just as, as Judge Kuczynski in the Ninth Circuit in U.S. versus Busher railed against uh, in that case. I would just like to conclude, if I may, Justice Stevens, with the second portion of the question that you had asked, and that was this that in the circumstance where the entirety of American Airlines might be seized because of the two or three films, under that circumstance, we would suggest that one would look to the motive underlying the statute in terms of its speech-suppressive characteristics, that the statute had been, whether it be in that circumstance to get its speech or more specifically in our own uh, client situation where it had been devised to get to speech, we would suggest that the motive ought to be examined, even though we well recognize. Now, is that as a constitutional matter or as a statutory matter? Uh, as a constitutional matter in oh. terms of dealing with... But under the statute, there would be the, the prosecutor would have the same duty to seize the entire airline that he has here Absolute, to seize the entire... Absolutely, Justice Stevens, no question. Uh, I would have thought you might make a, an Eighth Amendment argument somewhere along the line in response to these inquiries. Well, uh, Thank you, Justice O'Connor. As I, I thought I had mentioned uh, to Justice White that there, or, or Justice Stevens that there certainly would be an Eighth Amendment issue, whether it be under the excessive fines provision or the cruel and unusual punishment provision, that the confiscation of this business with the notion of forfeiture being tantamount to fines, as you observed uh, recently, uh, for Eighth Amendment purposes would constitute a grossly disproportionate penalty in connection with the underlying offense. And this would be whether the underlying offense was analyzed under the Solemn Majority Test or under, uh, or, uh, or under Justice Kennedy's test as articulated in, uh, in, in Harmelin. I mean, this is the most passive kind of felony. This is the sort of conduct which in Osborne, this court noted in terms of the obscenity laws, were motivated by essentially a paternalistic interest uh, in the subject matter. It is the sort of offense which, again, applying Justice Kennedy's form of analysis, is not the sort of thing which generates parallel or ancillary offenses and where there's no national consensus in connection with whether obscenity or erotic material should be prosecuted. Seven states have no obscenity laws, and there is certainly minimal or rather relatively minimal federal enforcement in terms of numbers of places around the country of this uh, of this particular I take it you wouldn't be here making this argument if, if, uh, if your client uh, sold a, uh, a reasonable amount of, uh, well, an unreasonable amount of cocaine in his bookstores along with books. Absolutely. You're, of course, right. Absolutely right, Justice White, that if there had been, and our argument is, as in well, this case, that the sole predicate offense was speech, that if our client had been, as part of the predicate acts, indicted for the sale of cocaine, our argument is over. And because then even, though, uh, even, even though even though uh, his entire business was seized, absolutely, well, we're constrained to. Well, wouldn't to, you still have an Eighth Amendment argument? Yes, there there may well be an Eighth Amendment argument with respect to that. But in terms, of, uh, for, forgive me, Justice White, I thought you were addressing well, that's all right. the, the First Amendment uh, question. All right, I see your red light is on. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Weston. Uh, General Starr, we'll hear from you. Chief Justice, and may it please the, the Court, let me begin where we left off in this discussion. As I see it, until the, the very end of his argument, Mr. Weston did not seem to be calling into question the basic proposition that this Court established, after hearing Mr. Weston's arguments to the contrary, in Fort Wayne books, that obscenity is not speech within the meaning of the First Amendment. 
and that it can serve as a predicate offense for a RICO statute. Secondly, he has... Do you think it's agreed. entirely invisible to the First Amendment? It is. Mr. R.A.V.? To the extent that a <laughs> final determination has been made that it is obscene, the First Amendment does not care, and thus, in that sense, it is invisible once it's been determined. In terms of First Amendment values, yes, it you is invisible to the First Amendment. you think it's consistent with the holding in R.A.V.? I don't think it's inconsistent with the holding in R.I.V. because R.I.V. did not seem to call into question. R.I.V. was obviously concerned with content basis, and I don't want to delay unduly in re-arguing what may be a very intriguing dialogue within the court about R.I.V., and I know the court has now taken the Wisconsin case. The basic holding in R.I.V., and it was a, a unanimous holding, was that that ordinance had to fall because it was content-based. This court has held that as serious as content-based kinds of distinctions are, obscenity is a different matter, and obscenity is not protected within the meaning of the First Amendment. Now, the second aspect, and I think this is an important part of the argument, that is not being contested is our CARA, that if, in fact, there is a, as he would say, non-speech predicate, there can, in fact, be forfeiture of what he considers First Amendment expressive materials. What I think we have seen today is, first of all, an assault on Fort Wayne books without his having said in the petition that he wants to see Fort Wayne books overruled. Accepting the proposition that Fort Wayne books and the value of stare decisis is still good constitutional law, and taking that with our CARA, we get exactly where Justice Scalia was suggesting that we get in this case, that we somehow, combining those two holdings, end up with a violation of the First Amendment. That ends up being quite a remarkable proposition that is unfounded in this Court's First Amendment jurisprudence. What really seems to be at issue here is this sense of disproportionality, that the defendant, the petitioner, stands convicted of seven obscenity offenses, and yet this entire business enterprise, including what he considers presumptively expressive and protected materials, has been forfeited to the government. Is there anything there, in the record to show us the extent of the forfeiture of what was... Uh, yes, I refer the court to the petition appendix and the thorough opinions by Judge Rosenbaum, where he goes through a very careful analysis of 1963 uh, A1, A2, A3, and showing what parts of the business, proceeds, interests, corporations, and so forth, are being forfeited, and why each is being forfeited appropriately under the statute. And that gets, by the way, to part of the response, I think, to this sort of intuitive sense that can be put most comfortably, I think, in Eighth Amendment terms, that there's wild disproportionality at work here. That is not so. For the following reasons, and, and if I may, let me share with you a bit of the record in the case, not what the film... Why don't you just X, tell us about the record rather than share it with us? The record tells us, Mr. Chief Justice, that there were essentially here ten businesses and adult theaters that were engaged in the sale of literature 
and movies that all partook of the same nature. They were adult entertainment materials. That's what this was all about. The government offered to introduce into evidence not only the obscene materials, and at the jury trial, the first film that was shown, She Male Encounters, 80 minutes was displayed to the jury. Additional films were displayed to the jury. The government, anticipating the very kind of argument that was eventually made at the Court of Appeals and in this court, said, there are others and we are prepared to introduce those. An objection was interposed on relevancy grounds. In addition, at the forfeiture phase of the trial, there was, as uh, my colleague on the other side has indicated, introduced to the court 400 plus videos and magazines that the district court at page 153 of the petition appendix specifically found are the without making the same kind of elaborate review of every minute of the movie or every aspect of the book are, were of the same nature. But ultimately, what the court also had before it, what the jury had before it, was an enterprise that was rife with criminality. Secreted assets, underreporting of income. Mr. Starr, is that part of your case? Yes, it is. That, that it's was not, necessary to prove that? It's not necessary, but it's part of my case in the sense that if you read the indictment, the indictment alleged various tax offenses and fraud and... Well, isn't that correct that the obscenity offenses were the only predicate? Absolutely. And I don't want to mislead the court. Then exactly. why don't we talk about the other offenses? Let's assume he's a real bad person for all these other reasons. Because it tells us about the nature of this enterprise and the criminality of the enterprise. But is the that, is that, you're telling me this because I'm really am curious because the statute is a difficult statute to understand. Do you agree with your opponent uh, with respect to his answer to my hypothetical about American Airlines that you would have the authority under the statute to forfeit the entire airline if they showed three or four obscene movies in, in a flight from here to California? Absolutely not. Uh, under and, and the reason is the statute, 1962, talks about a pattern of racketeering. This court in H.J. Inc., this court in Sedema. Well, but you had a pattern of uh, racketeering with six obscenity offenses. That's enough, isn't it? <coughs> But we, were prepared, statute, I mean. but we were prepared to show much more. And recall in Sedema. And you could have proved a lot more. But is it and not that, true that under the statute, all you had to prove was six obscenity offenses to get your pattern of racketeering? Action? To show that, in fact, there was a pattern of racketeering and then the other elements of the enterprise, that the enterprise was used in the offense. That is to say, to take your American Airlines, right. if a division manager or if the president himself of American Airlines, if Mr. Crandall orders the showing of this, this place doesn't mean American Airlines is going to be forfeited. He may, it is, it is in personam. This operates in personam. If it's corporate policy, yes, I would have to say, Justice Stevens, that there is the possibility that we would have to analyze the corporation's liability. But recall... Well, it, can it helps sell a few tickets to the from here to California. Isn't that enough? Isn't that all you need under the statute? Not at all in terms of corporate uh, liability. I'm trying to draw a distinction between what I understand you to be concerned about, which is forfeiture by I'm American Air... Disproportionality. Exactly. Forfeiture of an entire airline on the basis of these few offenses. 
My response attributed to the running of the business because it, it induced some people to take the flight that they might not otherwise have taken. I would have to know, first of all, whether this was in fact corporate policy, board of directors uh, uh, approved policy and the like when we're talking about a corporate forfeiture as opposed to the in personam forfeiture of Mr. Crandall's on interest in American Airlines because he has to, under the statute, use this enterprise for criminal purposes. That's the evil that the statute is getting at, and that's what was built up here. Well, let's assume the board of directors approved the, the schedule of flight, you know, what the movies they're going to show on the flights to California. It's r rather unlikely, but assume they did. And they, they decided that there were six very interesting Swedish films that, uh, that might be very attractive to a lot of travelers, and they decided to show them. They turn out to be obscene. Uh, and they had advertised them. They could forfeit the whole airline. I don't think so. Under this uh, uh, court's interpretation in H.J. Inc. of the statute, which we don't quarrel with, in fact, we think it's quite correct because it, it, it is the c statute's concern, Congress's concern about what the court called the, pa the pattern, that is a, a threat of continuity. You just this is six is enough for a pattern. I have suggested that it could be enough as long as there is the threat of continuity, and that's why I will not concede that any other than the most irrational corporation would knowingly, as a matter of corporate policy, continue and threaten to continue within the meaning of H.J. Inc. What this statute was aiming at, and why this court has seen since 1984, so little of these kinds of predicate offenses is the kind of empire that we saw here, one that is essentially given over to the display of materials that are very similar, as the district court saw, to well, it those may be, Mr. Starr, if I may interrupt you, it may be very similar, but there is a crucial constitutional difference depending on whether there are six pieces which are obscene uh, and, and 600,000 which are merely erotic. Uh, and it seems to me that your argument rests upon the identification of what is assumed and probably correctly assumed to be simply erotic adult material with the six which were shown to be obscene. And, and that's your way of uh, sort of getting out of the analogy that Justice Stevens is suggesting, and I don't see how that's a legitimate basis. I don't, I don't see how we can assume the identity of eroticism with obscenity. I don't think you have to make that assumption. The point that I'm getting at is can Congress constitutionally say, once you prove the requisite elements of RICO, effect a forfeiture? In our view, yes, that it is not disproportionate when, in fact, the enterprise is being used as the instrument for carrying out the criminal activity. Here, the pattern is the sale of obscene materials. And General Starr, would you take the same position if, if a substantial amount of the inventory turned out to be Gideon's Bibles? We would take the same position, that it is that what RICO is getting at, and I think this is what is critical in terms of a First Amendment analysis, that RICO is neutral in terms of what it is seeking to obtain. It is seeking to obtain proceeds and assets. It does not care what those assets are, if they're cash registers or if they're Gideon's Bibles. There would be no First Amendment concern that would trigger even so much as an O'Brien 
test to the... Not as long as there's an appropriate predicate offense, and then I think there is an appropriate, as, as was noted in the concurring opinion in our CARA, mm -hmm. a concern that Congress, that, that, that the government may be getting at a business because it disfavors that particular speech. Well, would the and government have burned the assets if it had turned out they were Gideon's Bibles? And I would seriously doubt that, that it would have. And one of the reasons that... So uh, does that mean it's somehow content-based? Not at all. Because of the because of the government's concern about the nature of these materials and not wanting, frankly, to traffic in obscene materials, that the government did not need to go into the business or otherwise dispose of these in other, any other way than to destroy. I should note the fact that a number of these materials were, in fact, preserved and shipped to California, and I don't think there will be dispute with respect uh, to that. Moreover, the adult theaters were not forfeited. The government did not try to achieve a forfeiture of the adult theaters. What it was, in fact, focusing on were these bookstores, and this was all before the jury in the case. Photographs of the interiors of these bookstores are, are these adult entertainment magazine and video kinds of centers. And so the jury had before it the nature of this enterprise, and that prompted then at the forfeiture hearing the judge to conclude that what had been established here was a vast supply network that permitted this pattern of racketeering in terms of obscenity offenses in interstate trafficking, in uh, obscene materials, to take place. That is to say, what is RICO getting at? It is an enterprise an individual's use of that enterprise as the vehicle for commission of criminal offenses. And when Congress took the step that it did in 1984 to include obscenity as a predicate offense, again, Fort Wayne Book said that was all right to do. It was all right for Indiana, it was all right for Congress. It did so based on Congress's concern and understanding that pornography was, in fact, linked to organized crime and, in fact, was a major supply of source, financial resources for organized crime. That's why Congress saw fit to include it. That is why the uh, prosecutions that this court has seen, there have been all of five. This court has seen two. The Perba case, which the court had before it on certiorari but did not take certiorari a few years ago, all were the same type as is what we have here, an organized criminal enterprise given over to the trafficking in obscene materials and that also was characterized by these other aspects of secreted assets, hidden income, the use of nominees as owners of the corporation and the like. Are you, are you, are you suggesting that if there weren't uh, the evidence of the hidden assets and the tax offenses and so on, that the result under, the, under RICO might be different? I am not. I'm not moving from, from my comment to Justice Stevens, but in terms of why this case was brought, if there is concern about this case was brought because the government disfavors certain kinds of speech, these are the kinds of prosecutions that the record shows that the United States has, in fact, brought. There have been four or five obscenity predicate RICO prosecutions to have made it to this no, court. I don't understand what you're saying. You're saying you do or do not disfavor uh, this kind of speech if it's non-obscene. 
the concern we don't admit you're saying? I'm just trying I didn't quite understand whether you said the government did I may I may have misspoken Justice Stevens I am not prepared to concede as Mr. Weston would have the court accept that obscenity is speech no no I understand I'm assuming that there's a lot of this stuff out there that's not obscene we have to presume that I'm asking you whether you were telling us that the government disfavors the non-obscene erotic material speech. No, that's oh. not of, an, of interest to the government. It's puzzling why you burned it all. That, that is not of interest to the government. The government's concern, Justice Stevens, was that these materials were of, as the district court saw, who had the materials before him, of a similar nature, and the government is not interested either in storing these materials indefinitely, nor is it uh, interested in selling these materials, so, so, which might be adjudicated to be obscene. So you're saying if the government uh, did, in fact, uh, bring these for RICO forfeiture proceedings only against sellers of pornography, uh, that you would indeed have a, a, a problem of, of content-based suppression? At least I think it's more likely. I, 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 no, I don't concede that. I do think that you might have a charge of selective prosecution under this court's analysis in weight. That kind of uh, uh, argument can obviously be advanced. It was not advanced here. There's no uh, discussion or suggestion by Mr. Alexander that he alone has been singled out for prosecution. No. As long as the government is proceeding with obscenity as the predicate, it is abiding by Congress's intent and it is not making content-based distinctions. Suppose it, suppose it, it brought no other RICO. I, I, that's what I understood yeah, Justice yeah. Uh, Souter's questions yeah. to be. The only RICO prosecution the government ever brings are obscenity prosecutions of, of, of this sort. You, you wouldn't you'd think that would be a basis to suspect that the government is... Uh, has some antagonism towards the speech, I, I, I would be prepared to consider that evidence of, of such antagonism. If you if, no if other, in fact, I, I, but I you think have to, you have a few other RICO cases, don't you? Oh, we have many other. In fact, the United States, if there is some impression, uh, Justice Scalia, that the government is only bringing RICO obscenity predicate cases, we bring about 100 cases a year, one or two of those a year are typically obscenity predicate uh, type offenses. But if, to accept the hypothetical, we were only using RICO, which had seven or eight predicate offenses, and using it only, I think, number one, one can uh, obviously appropriately be concerned with the exercise of prosecutorial discretion and, the, uh, and whose power is that. It is the executive branch's authority to determine what is, in fact, the most important kinds of prosecutions to bring. But because of the First Amendment overlay that does, in fact, arise in this country, it does seem to me that an argument could very well be mounted, and it might be accepted, that the government is engaged in selective enforcement, selective prosecution uh, of cases, and we would take that through the weight analysis. I thank the Court. Thank you, General Starr. The case is submitted.